0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP Faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. Please come in. But before you do, be warned. Beyond this intro, nothing inside this podcast is as it seems. Black is white, up is down, liquid is solid, fat is thin. Eh, maybe we won't go that far. But be warned all the same. Leave behind all preconceptions. Remove any vestiges of logic from your mind. Abandon all hope. Uh, Again, probably too far. Be prepared to have your brain twisted and bent, desperately trying to make sense of the sorcery contained within. Is it real? Is it illusion? There's only one way to find out. On today's episode, first the bell is rung. Take your seat. Everyone greet your teacher, Mr. Bubb. Mr. B. Elza Bub, And then we'll wave our magic research and watch a premise disappear right before our eyes. And then a goal update so frightening, so terrifying, it must be real. So upgrade the insurance on that laptop. Things are going to get hot, real hot. And then prepare to come to terms with the fact that if it weren't for people doing exactly what they do, nobody would be doing it. And that's because you are awful, Now for all those that still dare to enter, reach forth your hands, concentrate as one, and speak the magic words. Abraca, here we go. Have you ever experienced buyer's remorse? If you've ever purchased something, I guarantee you have. You know the feeling. As a kid, you save up your allowance for weeks or months and gather all your dollar bills together. Or I guess today you check your Venmo balance or something and plunk it all down on that toy that you just know will make you happy for the rest of eternity. Only to almost instantly regret your life choices as the stupid dumb toy is stupid dumb boring and great now it's stupid dumb broken. This never changes. You buy that car, the electronics, the house, make the upgrade, get that mail order bride, buy the accessory, pierce or ink your body, etc. And within a period of time that's too short for even the most precise scientific chronometers to measure, you instantly feel that twinge of regret and shortly thereafter the realization that you're just going to have to live with what you've done sets in. a Mimi, and yes, I want to say it that way, was popular a few years ago showing Fry, the young idiot from the cartoon Futurama, holding a wad of cash shouting, shut up and take my money. The backstory is that the new iPhone, spelled E-Y-E phone, was out and could do everything, as all iPhones allegedly can, so he rushed to the store breathlessly, asked the clerk if there were any left, Luckily, he thought that there might be one left in the back, and as he reached behind the curtain, the phone factory was churning out thousands of these things, and a robotic arm placed one in the hand of the clerk. Now He explains to Fry that it's $500, you can't choose your carrier, the battery can't hold a charge, and the receptionist tear, and before he can finish, Fry holds out the cash in the now iconic Mimi pose and shouts, shut up and take my money. This has been used as the meme, I'll say it right this time, the meme for so many things. A coffee mug with the full script of the movie Shrek on it. Shut up and take my money. Apple added a third camera on their phone. Shut up, take my money. A knife that toasts the bread while it slices the bread. Shut up and take my money. French's mustard-flavored ice cream. Let that sink in. Shut up and take my money. And this is the problem, isn't it? We just tend to thoughtlessly spend money on stuff that we don't need. The faster we can move into a purchase, the more dumberer the purchases we seem to make is, are. This is why people like Dave Ramsey and his ilk have careers helping people get back out of debt. This is why he pushes a defined budget with non-negotiable buckets of money. Left to ourselves, we tend to make stupid decisions. All that said, grab your wad of cash, hold it out in front of you, get ready to mindlessly shout, shut up and take my money, because I have found an absolute no-brainer. Now, if you live in England, it'll only cost you about $15,000 American. If you're not living in England, it'll be about $30,000 American. But when I tell you what it is, you'll be willing to pay any price. Ready? Okay. Contain your excitement, at least the best that you can. Found on NotTheBee.com, headline, The University of Exeter Now Offers Degree in Magic and Occult Science to Explore Topics Like Decolonization. See? Was I right or was I right? (sighs) So Exeter is in the southwest part of England, kind of on that little tail thing sticking off to the left of the bottom of the island. You know, basically in the center of Topsham, Naderwater, Upton Pine, and Souton. You know where I'm talking about. Well, they're offering a Master of Arts degree in Magic and Occult Science. If you go full-time, it'll only take you a single year to get your Master's, which seems relatively fast for a Master's, at least from my perspective. So, I mean, if all you want is to get a Master's degree to command that extra cash and to throw some letters after your name and your email signature, well, I'm, maybe this is a quick and easy way to get it. You know, if you're okay with hanging out with the Dark Lord and all. If you'd like to be part of things you definitely shouldn't be part of, you'll want to start the admissions process now. The classes start in September 2024, so you do have some time, but I'm not sure how long this whole admissions process thing takes. You don't want to wait until the last minute. That's all I'm saying. So I want to get straight to the source on this, at least to start with, exeter.ac.uk. The master's is under the Arab and Islamic Studies Postgraduate Course Listing. Why? I'm not entirely sure yet, but it kind of looks like it's more due to the program director, maybe. We'll get to her and we'll we'll get to this here in a moment. Here's the overview of the course. First, build interdisciplinary expertise whilst exploring your specific interests within the long and diverse history of esotericism, witchcraft, ritual magic, occult science, and related topics. Next, Join our dynamic postgraduate community benefiting from research-inspired teaching led by a range of top scholars from different fields. Point C. Our prestigious Center for Magic and Esotericism welcomes MA students to monthly meetings and local field trips and number 4 graduate with the skills and knowledge needed to influence and drive business strategies that make a positive contribution to the environment and society does it feel like this overview is generated by ai because it's more of a word salad made up of college course words really i mean interdisciplinary expertise really in in this really long and diverse history mm, okay maybe they have a prestigious center for magic and esotericism. I mean, who thought that was something that would be lauded at some point? They're taking field trips? Would this be to, what, Hades or something, maybe? I'm not sure. And probably my favorite. You'll graduate with the skills and knowledge needed to influence and drive business strategies that make a positive contribution to the environment and society with your masters in magic and the occult you'll be able to do that now how do you put that on a resume or do you even put this on a resume what companies are out there looking for a magician or an occultist or whatever how do you breach that subject in an interview Now, the requirement to get in this program is a 2-2 honors degree, which is an English designation of a bachelor's degree with the lower end of a second tier of honors or something like that. So essentially, if you're just some common dummy with a dumb, dumb, dummy bachelor degree that you just barely squeaked out with, say, I don't know, a a 2.956 GPA that allows you to just barely round that sucker up to 3.0 on your resume, which was very important for me. I mean, for... For someone, for some random person, that would be important. If that random description describes you or someone that you know, it's definitely not me. Well, you're not smart enough to get your master's in evil. Now, if you're an international student, you'll have to speak English and you have to pass some proficiency test or something. I don't know. I didn't look into it that hard. As for the content... The core module is A.R.A.M. 251, Esotericism, which is basically the study of hidden things, known only by a select few, Esotericism and the Magical Tradition. (laughs) This module will be team-taught and explore, quote, Magic in Greece and Rome, Occult Texts in Judaism, Christianity and Islam, the History of Witchcraft, magic in literature and folklore, deception and illusion, and the history of science and medicine, among other key themes. How does the history of science and medicine fit in there exactly? I I mean, okay, I guess, sure, potions and cauldrons and eyes of Newt or whatever, but really? I mean, really? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong, right? The last paragraph in the course content really, I don't know, it, it, does, it does something here. Check this out. Quote, By housing this program within the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies, we place the Arabo-Islamic cultural heritage back where it belongs in the center of these studies and in the history of the West. Decolonization. The exploration of alternative epistemologies, feminism, and anti-racism are at the core of this program. I have no idea what to even think here. So, Arabo-Islamic cultural heritage is in its proper position if it's centered in the occult. Okay, well here I am not arguing. To be honest, I would say that the same head being of the occult... Is also the same head being of Islam, but, but how do studies and evil tie in with decolonization and feminism and anti-racism, which incidentally is one of the most racist things in existence today, <laughs> ironically, and not just tie in, but they're at the core of this? As part of this, you'll be conducting research, quote, using our archival materials, which include sources for rites and rituals, meanings of belief. West Country witchcraft and folklore, along with ancient and Arabic sources. The Bill Douglas Cinema Museum also has a large collection of books, ephemera, and artifacts on the history of magic lanterns, phantasmagoria, optical illusions, photography, Victorian magic, and music hall performance, with many items relating to seances and Victorian occult activities. <laughs> Ah, okay, continuing on. Careers, that was a question I had. Where in the world, I mean, literally, could you ever use this? Quote, our MA program is designed to develop skills to prepare you for a wide range of professions or further study into PhD level. You will develop invaluable, transferable skills, including creative thinking, analytical thinking, curiosity, and lifelong learning, resilience, flexibility, agility, motivation, and self-awareness. All of that means nothing. I'm telling you, this is AI generated. It's got to be. Continuing on, this MA can lead you to a diverse range of careers. Examples include teaching, counseling, mentoring, heritage and museum work, work in libraries, tourism, arts organizations, the publishing industry, social justice, and environmental think tanks, spiritual and well-being guidance, writing and media, the arts, and further research. Okay, I know that when I'm looking for a counselor, a mentor, someone to help me with my well-being, the more that they can pull Satan into the whole conversation, the better, right? Just me? I mean, I'll totally agree that this study could fit in with some of those potential professions, but not most of them. And there's a question of could versus should. Anyway, the last bit. The recent surge in interest around topics pertaining to magic and occultism means that many of these professions have experienced a similar surge in demand for this expertise. And that is a terrifying sentence. Is there actually a surge in interest in this? Is there, more importantly, I think, a surge for professionals versed in this? I mean, if that's true, that speaks volumes about where this world is currently. All right, some more background. The program director is associate professor in medieval Arabic language and literature, Emily Selov. And I don't want to judge somebody by how they look, but I'm absolutely going to do that right now. If I saw her on the street, I wouldn't look twice. She's an average looking generic white female. But knowing what I know now, looking at a few pictures I could find of her looking at her Facebook page, there's something. It's a, I don't know, a darkness in her eyes, an emptiness in her face. There is no way you can play with what she's playing with and not have it drain you or destroy you from the inside out. And that destruction inside will make its way out. Maybe I'm biased by what I know. Probably so. But maybe not. So, Professor Emily is an interesting cat. She got her PhD in 2012 from UCLA. We already know that she's the Associate Professor in Medieval Arabic Language and Literature and the convener of the University of Exeter's Center for Magic and Esotericism. I'm going to just read this next part from her overview page verbatim, as I have no idea how to do anything other than that. You'll understand. Quote, her early research focused on the figure of the uninvited guest, or party crasher, in medieval Arabic literature, and especially on the 11th century work *Hikayat Abi-e-Kassim, the subject of her monograph, which is a written work on a single individual, that's what a monograph is, and the work is entitled *Hikayat Abi-e-Kassim, A Literary Banquet, Edinburgh University Press 2016. She also co-edited and translated this text with Professor Geert Jan van Gelder, entitled The Portrait of abu i alBagdadi al-Baghdadi al-Tamini. That's a Gibb Memorial Trust 2021. Are you lost yet? I mean, yeah, I'm lost. Okay, I, I, I'm lost. I'll be honest here. How is any of this relevant to life? I mean, not to demean Ms. Emily, but I mean, here we go. This is useless. It's quite literally useless. However, we continue. Quote, her translation of another 11th century book of party crashing is titled Selections from the Art of Party Crashing in Medieval Iraq. (laughs) She also co-authored a textbook to introduce beginning students to the city of medieval Baghdad, entitled Baghdad at the Center of a World 8th through 13th Century and has created a collection of cartoons titled Popeye and Curly, 120 Days in Medieval Baghdad, to accompany this textbook. Now don't everyone rush to Amazon to pick this up at once, you'll overwhelm and crash the site. She is currently writing a short monograph for the Cambridge Elements series titled The Donkey King, Asinine Symbology in Ancient and Medieval Magic. And I'm sorry to take this long on this, but if I had to read it, well, you have to hear it, so we'll finish off her overview, sans break-in by me. Dr. Sidlov was a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Manchester from 2012 to 2014, working on the ERC-funded Arabic commentaries on the Hippocratic Aphorisms Project. She has articles published and in progress on medieval Arabic medicine and magic. Her article, Magic as Poetry, Poetry as Magic, a fragment of Arabic spells in Magic, Ritual, and Witchcraft 2020, explores an area of special interest to her research, the overlap between poetic and magical language. She was the PI, I'm not sure what that is, of a Leverhulme-funded research project, A Sorcerer's Handbook. 2019 to 2022, which will create an addition, translation, and multidisciplinary, multi-authored scholarly analysis of Siraj al-Din al-Sakaki's magic handbook, Kitab al-Shamil Wabar al-Kamil, the book of the complete is how that translates, this multicultural, multilingual guide to cursing, healing, and harnessing the power of stars, Angels, jinn, and devils was conceived at the crossroad of many magical and religious traditions and serves as the intersection at which multiple scholarly methodologies and disciplines can intersect today. I don't even know what to say at this point. I mean, I may again be a little biased here, but how exactly is she contributing to society? This is quite literally of the same use of the off sided underwater basket weaving, or as I've heard Dave Ramsey say, the underwater marble stacking degree. I'm a fairly open-minded individual to history, culture, etc. It may not interest me so much, but I understand how studies of the past at least can be important from a societal viewpoint. But her monograph was about a story about a guy that apparently joined a meal with people he didn't know— He ate their food and essentially paid for his meal by telling stories during the meal. Who cares? I gotta believe that even in the Middle East, in Iraq, most people have never heard of this guy or this story or care about it, as this knowledge has no effect on anyone, anywhere, at any time. Nobody will ever say, you know, I was heading out this direction, and then Hakayat abi kasim popped into my head, and I was like, nah, dog, I guess I better not do that. So... Ms. Salove teaches three different modules at the University of Exeter, obviously the Esotericism and Magical Tradition module, also the Arabian Nights Perception and Reception, which sounds just absolutely something, and finally the From Holy Text to Sex Manuals in the Medieval Middle East, which, no, no, I'm going to stop there. Okay. That's the course, that's the program director and this is getting a lot of attention as it should. NPR interviewed one of the professors, Sajad Rizvi, about this new offering. The interviewer, Aisha Rasco, and Rizvi start off by sharing a laugh about Exeter becoming Hogwarts. Now side note, I know that the Harry Potter thing is very polarizing. I'm on the side that they're not good, that it's not a good series. The main problem I have with Harry Potter is that there is no defined good or evil. It's stated in the Sorcerer's Stone that there is no good or evil. There's only power and those too weak to seek it. I do understand the context of that statement, but when you look at the Lord of the Rings, for instance, or the Chronicles of Narnia, there are absolutes with regard to good and evil. Star Wars starts to blur that line, as there is the Force, and there are light and dark sides, but if you're a Star Wars fan, you've seen that that line between good and evil and the use of the Force is very fine. And that's, from my understanding, the same problem that Harry Potter has. The other and larger problem I have with it is that it does pull actual occult symbols and artifacts out of real life, as well as some spells and incantations, and it's packaged as if it's harmless— And I'm sorry, you may love Harry Potter, but portraying magic and witchcraft, especially with blurry lines and real imagery and real incantations, as nothing but lighthearted fun for kids, that's not good. Now, I know this is very divisive, even within my own extended family, but now we come to the University of Exeter, with a literal masters in the occult and magic being offered, and the joke is about it becoming Hogwarts. (laughs) What a lark. Again, the lines are being blurred. So I think the easiest way to do this is to play a few minutes of excerpts from the six-minute interview, rather than me just restating it all. So let's start with the role of magic in society, tradition, and religion.
1: It's really about you know what is the role of magic in society, the so-called hidden arts, ways in which people see the world and try to manipulate the world, the historical study of um, how magic, the occult. The esoteric was found in in the world across different cultures as well. I think that's Western traditions, but also Eastern traditions, Islamic traditions, and so forth. And, and, and many, you know, religious traditions, um, including you know, Abrahamic ones, cite descriptions of divine magic. Like, will your program examine that history? Yes, there are a whole series of what are known as occult arts, occult sciences, which are directly associating the Abrahamic traditions with understanding and, and using scripture, um, you know, writing certain phrases down, using them in amulets, opening a, a page of, of Bible or the Quran and seeing whether it says something which is positive or negative about an intention that you have, uh, as well as different prescriptions you find in Christianity, Judaism and Islam about how you use the word of God to combat um, black magic.
0: Now, we'll come back to this, but speaking for Christianity, yes, there are people who look at the Bible as that kind of a text. No, that's not what we do with the Bible. If you're using the Bible to find magical phrases, if you're opening the Bible and just popping your finger down randomly to see what God's answer to your question is, just close it up, get yourself a magic eight ball. That is not the way the Bible is written. That's not what it's for. And you're blaspheming God by using his word in that sort of callous way. All right. How is this being received?
1: I hear that your your program has garnered a lot of interest from prospective students, and there's obviously like a strong public interest in magic. Like, why do you think this is? In many ways, the the modern world is all about, about marginalizing the magical. It's about the rational. It's about the everyday. It's about the economic interests and and scientific and technological progress, and. In all that, we actually forget that there's there's elements of, of life which are very much tied to imagination. The magic, uh, the occult, even the esoteric, is really about the powers of the imagination and the way in which imagination makes cultures. In many ways, the interest in magic, the occult, it's very much part of a kind of a, a self-reflection of the way in which we understand religion, philosophy, history. Is there more to this sort of reality than we have really been focusing upon? So one of the interesting things about those who have been already applying for the program, we've already had a number of applications from China. And that's quite uh, unusual because on the one hand, magic is seen quite negatively in China because of the, the legacy of communism at the same time, of course, people in China are not immune to the, the impact of popular culture. So in, in some ways, you know, we're quite excited by the possibility that we will actually end up recruiting a student cohort, which is quite diverse in that way. Um, you know, students from Europe, from North America, hopefully, and also from, from China.
0: Notice how this is being downplayed. Oh sure, it's magic in the occult, but it's just a part of society, it's really just imagination. It's all just normal life. Sort of. But this is delving into arenas we should be staying away from, especially college-aged young adults, many of whom will be coming into the program with their only understanding of the occult being the Harry Potter series. Finally, what are graduates going to do with this new knowledge and this master's degree?
1: I think it will depend very much on on the particular specializations they might be interested in, but I think the people who want to do this would be doing it because they really have a passion for the subject you know no one 's going to do a masters unless they really do have a passion and you know with this sort of background there 's all sorts of possibilities of people going into creative industries of different kinds um, they might go into the media they might go into um, the nonprofit sector um, internationally, because one of the elements of the degree is to bring a an intercultural approach to this, so that sort of critical analytic understanding of different cultures is something which certainly will be a, an important expertise and skill that potential um, students can take into the job market
0: i 'm not sure if you heard what I did, but basically there's no use for this. This is nothing but either a money making scheme or an indoctrination scheme, or maybe both, from the school. There's no use for this degree at all. This isn't needed to foster an international approach. It's not needed to be creative. It's not needed to understand different cultures. It's a nothing. It's a big nothing, or at least nothing good. If the general job market ever advertises the need of this training, knowledge, or skill, we have a much larger problem on our hands. Now, I can't speak to Islam. Islam. But although Judaism and Christianity have people and sects that treat it as some sort of mystical divining rod or magic book or whatever, that's not what either religion even comes close to being or comes close to claiming. And I'm pretty comfortable saying Islam falls into this as well. Now, we do have people like Jen Johnson, the daughter of Pastor, and I use that term wildly loosely, Pastor Bill Johnson, who has said multiple times that she sees the Holy Spirit like the genie in Aladdin, and he's blue. Now, she literally thinks that she can command the Holy Spirit, and he'll do as commanded. That would be magic, and honestly, an occultic practice. I've seen many instances of the heavily charismatic churches, specifically the They're not Christian. The new apostolic Reformation churches practicing all sorts of things like chanting over and over. uh, People laying on graves called grave soaking. People literally flailing around in what appears to be absolute torment on the ground. They call it the Holy Spirit. Mm, The God of the book doesn't act like that. This is demonic. But bringing it much closer to home, when we take a fragment of a verse and use it as our own lucky charm, how is that vastly different. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, most people who use that use it out of context. Now, in context, this is not Paul saying that if you throw him a challenge, he can overcome it no matter what it is. He's saying that this life may treat you good and it may beat you up, beat you to a pulp even, but because of Christ, he and we can endure and fulfill our calling. That said, is it okay to have a gym bag or a tattoo or a water bottle with this on it? Sure. Sure. But if you're using it as a mantra, an incantation to overcome and be the victor, well, it starts to get a little fuzzy in my book there. It's the same as I've already stated with reading scripture for guidance. That's a good thing. When making a decision, definitely search through the scriptures to find anything that might pertain to your decision. Seek out that wisdom in any way possible. But if you drop the Bible open on a table, pop a finger down, and use that as your random answer, that's using the Bible as a divining tool. If you're reading the Bible and looking for numeric patterns, looking for keywords or phrases that you believe are speaking in code to you and your specific circumstance, well, you're attempting to interpret omens or fortune tell. That's not what the Bible is, and the Bible specifically warns against and prohibits that kind of sorcery. The Bible specifically tells us not to play with this stuff. The, The Old Testament, Mosaic, or Levitical law forbids the Israelites from messing with this stuff. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am Yahweh your God. Deuteronomy 18:9 through 14 says, "When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices soothsaying or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who is an enchanter or a medium or a spiritist." Or one who inquires of the dead? For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And because of these abominations, Yahweh your God will dispossess them from before you. You shall be blameless before Yahweh your God. For those nations, which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice soothsaying and to diviners, but as for you, Yahweh your God has not allowed you to do so. And then Exodus 22.18 says, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, in the Old Testament, to practice any of these things was a death sentence, right? I mean, God was simply not going to allow his chosen people to be defiled by playing with demonic, satanic evil. If that was your thing, God would require your life. Now, in the New Testament, we don't see the same thing commanded in the same way, but we do see that those who are children of God remove this evil from their lives, and we're told the penalty for unrepentantly dabbling in this as well. The penalty is the same as it was in the Old Testament. God requires your life, but this time it's by His hand, and it's seen in the second death. I mean, it was in the Old Testament that way too, but it wasn't stated that way exactly. So, Acts 19, 18 through 19 says, Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. See, repentance, real repentance, will cause us to purge the evil from our lives. Acts 8, 9 through 13. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astounded them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly astounded. And then we see a few of the warnings, Galatians 5:19 through 21 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, Revelation 21.8 says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So to bring this to a close, will the University of Exeter be the thing to bring England down or China or the United States or the globe? No, really won't they're a relatively small college with a total enrollment of about 30,000 students per year. To put that in perspective, the top enrollment colleges in the United States have over 150,000 students and the University of Exeter would be right on the edge of cracking the top 100 U.S. colleges when ranked by enrollment. Then you have to figure that Out of those 30,000, most are undergrad, it's about 75%, less than 20% of the students are going for their master's, and out of those 5,500 students, give or take, only a handful will actually choose this subject area. I think you'd be hard-pressed to see more than what, 100? Maybe more? Likely less. I mean, surely there can't be that many uh, who would actually enroll in a master's in magic and occult science. I think the bigger issue is that we're a society, a global population, that not only tolerates the fooling around with demonic evil, but we either embrace it, or we just laugh it off as if it wasn't a serious issue. The Bible, Old and New Testament, sure do treat it seriously. It almost makes you think that maybe we should too. But this is what we've done for so long and are doing more and more. We're embracing and affirming evil. From fortune-telling tarot cards, the Ouija board, to pornography and mindless defilement of ourselves, unborn baby sacrifice, and look it up, Uh, Satanists consider and just recently confirmed that they believe abortion to be a ritualistic blood sacrifice to Satan, and they're absolutely correct, Uh, to child gender mutilation, affirming psychosis, uh, glorifying and deifying those with severe mental and spiritual sicknesses. I mean, how long will God be patient with the people whose every intent of the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually? I have no idea. I do know His timing is perfect. But honestly, would you have the patience shown by God? I know I wouldn't. If I had the power of God and owned my creation like God, knowing who I am, I would have squashed me like an ant many, many years ago. And I'm not dabbling in the occult, I'm not murdering babies, I'm not destroying children. But that's why God is God, and I'm not, and you're not. Now, we're at a point in our existence where none of us would be shocked if Christ came back now, or now, or then, or now again. But it could be millennia before he comes back. I mean, Israel could be scattered again and then brought back to their land as a nation again, and again, and again. The United States could have another revival and fall away and revival, etc., etc. Only God knows his timing, and again, his timing is perfect. Now, for us, in our very limited time on Earth, we need to be on constant alert that we don't allow ourselves or others to be taken in by the slippery slope of the world. Of course, I say that knowing that because we're a sinful humanity and a fallen creation, we're all on that slope somewhere right now. The Christian, hopefully, is working hard to arrest the descent, if not scramble back up the slope, if even just a slight bit. The unsaved are all sliding down that slope at varying speeds, and that's really what we're seeing here. A study in a subject that's become a novelty, a curiosity, fun or funny, exciting, but the concept that they might be dabbling in evil, well, that doesn't cross their mind. And that's because their and our concept of evil isn't what it should be. If we even consider evil to be a thing, and a growing number of people just don't believe in the idea of evil anymore. And that, I have to believe, is exactly where Satan would like for humanity to be. He promised we would be like gods if only we ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We ate it, instantly became aware of good and evil, and now we pronounce all things good and eschew the entire idea of evil. So, for as much as it feels and seems like a losing proposition, for you and I, assuming you're a born-again Christian, we must bring perspective, clarity, and reality to a world that's simply living in a delusion, completely and willingly submerged in evil— And at the same time, we must constantly drag ourselves out of that mire as well. Remember, there were a number of other sins, a a number of other evils that were grouped right along with that of sorcery in the warning passages I read. I'd be shocked if we all couldn't find at least one that we're dealing with personally in our own lives. Our battle is both with ourselves and with the direction of the world. Now, fortunately, we do have the Holy Spirit, the real one, not, not the blue one that Jen Johnson imagines. He can do anything he wants, as he is God, but he definitely will help us fight against the evil in our own lives as well as in the world. We need to trust him. We need to listen to his promptings and his warnings, and we need to persist in our petition for help in doing our job in this world. I don't know how closely you follow the news. I mean, I I sure hope it's not as closely as I do, and if you do, Oh, I hope you've got to steal something, I don't know, a spine or a, a mind, I'm not sure. There's literally everything going on in the world these days. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good things happening in the world, but, but that's not what the news focuses on, and in fact, that's not what I really focus on in this podcast either. At least not most of the time, definitely not initially. The reality is that turmoil, division, anger, hatred, violence, that's really what sells. I mean, that's what makes the news, and if most of us are being honest, that's what we kind of tune in to see and hear. I hate to admit it, but there is an adrenaline rush that comes with getting angry at the world. And if I'm being completely honest, the easiest part for me when it comes to writing the scripts for all of these segments is the snarky, sarcastic, angry parts that I generally start with. Trying to bring whatever story it is I'm working on back to the Bible and back to a non-angry worldview, something remotely resembling compassion, that's the hard part. And sometimes it's really hard which is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, to try to keep myself grounded in the truth no matter what's going on in the world. So I don't know if I'd call it indoctrination, but we're, I don't know, at least, let's say trained to look at the world around us with skepticism, negativity, pessimism, or just flat-out anger. Mainstream music, TV, movies, uh, not to mention social media, and pretty much everything else is just charged with negativity and division. And yet, with all of that, for nearly all of us, when we see a child in need or an injured animal, a family that's lost at all, a natural disaster, or how about just recently Americans that were left trapped in Afghanistan or Israel, we feel compassion for them, no matter if we know them or not. This is why there are seemingly an infinite number of charitable organizations, or why websites like GoFundMe and GiveSendGo work. Many people become aware of a need, and chipping a few bucks here and there, which turns into a larger pile of money, and that goes to try to help alleviate the burden being felt by whoever for whatever. And let's not forget about our offerings to churches, who in turn run charities or donate to charities, or, or what about missionaries who go around the world doing all sorts of things, including spreading the gospel? Again, all largely supported by churches or individual donations. But why? Why do we do all of this? Why do people give and why do people go? Why does any of this even exist? We'll get to that. So I ran across an interesting headline and an interesting article found on psychologytoday.com headline, The Paradox of Compassion. Now just to be clear, a paradox is something that despite appearing to have contradictory elements, is actually completely true in all of its aspects. So Eva Krakow, our author or reporter, is described as a, quote, German-born UK-dwelling psychologist, decision researcher, and amateur yogi. She starts her article with a sense of incredulity as we approach the holidays, quote, I am struck By the tremendous human capacity for kindness. Amidst frantic gift buying and cookie baking, charitable donations reach their annual high. The yearly sum of money donated to charitable causes in the U.S. is estimated at an eye-watering $499 billion. Now, To give you some idea of how much that actually is, it's double the budget for the Department of Education, it's more than triple the budget of the Department of Transportation, it's over four times that of the Social Security Administration, it's four times what the United States spent in 2022 on SNAP, or food stamp benefits, it's nearly six times what was spent in unemployment benefits over the peak six months of COVID, and it's 16... And a half times what was spent on unemployment benefits over the last year. It basically said it's, it's a lot of money. Now, Charitable giving is an amazing thing, especially considering it was severely damaged by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR's New Deal did a few things for us. First, it made what was globally just a typical cyclical depression uh, into a local Great Depression, prolonging it much longer than any other country had to deal with. Uh, Secondly, it allowed him to institute a number of government-run social welfare programs to help those in need. Or at least that was the claim. But although on the surface it did some good, systemically it started to erode personal responsibility and charity toward our fellow man. President Lyndon Johnson and his Great Society programs further blasted away at private charity by allowing governments to further grasp the reins of social welfare. See, what used to happen was that a person had a need. So they did whatever they could possibly do to try to meet the need. Now, if they couldn't work their way out of the problem, they could go to their family for help. If they had no family or their family was unable to help, they'd go to the church. Now, I'm not sure what would happen after this. At certain points in time, you'd go to the poorhouse or a debtor's prison, or maybe you'd sell yourself into some sort of indentured servitude. But the government didn't play a part. I believe I've told this story, I don't know, many, many episodes ago, but it it bears repeating, and I'll give it a little brief summary here. In the winter of 1827, Davy Crockett, a newly elected member of the House of Representatives, was on the steps of the Capitol with some other members, and they saw a huge glow over Georgetown. It was a large fire. When all was said and done, many houses burned, many people and families, children. They were homeless, left with nothing in the bitter winter cold. The next morning, the House introduced a $20,000 spending appropriations bill in order to offer relief to those in need. Although some opposed the charitable giving by the government using the people's tax dollars to do the giving, the yeas won the day, of which Davy Crockett was one. Now, the next summer, as Crockett rode back into his district in Tennessee to meet and greet and speak to his constituents, you know, campaign for votes, he saw a farmer plowing his field, moving in the direction of the road. Well, Crockett timed his arrival so as to meet the farmer as the farmer came to the edge of the field. When Crockett greeted him, the farmer coolly returned the greeting and then turned to plow the next furrow. Crockett stopped him, asked if he could speak with him for just a brief minute. So the farmer stopped, said he was pretty busy, but if it was quick, it would be fine. Crockett started to introduce himself, but the farmer cut him off, stating he knew who Crockett was. He voted for him previously, but he would never do so again. Crockett, shocked to hear this, further inquired as to why not. We'll pick up the story as told by Crockett at this point, starting with the farmer. Quote, Well, Colonel, it is hardly worthwhile to waste time or words upon it—I do not see how it can be mended—but you gave a vote last winter which shows that either you have not capacity to understand the Constitution, or that you are wanting the honesty and firmness to be guided by it. In either case, you are not the man to represent me. But I beg your pardon for expressing it that way. I did not intend to avail myself of the privilege of the constituent to speak plainly to the candidate for the purpose of insulting or wounding you. I intend by it only to say that your understanding of the Constitution is very different from mine. And I will say to you what, but for my rudeness, I should not have said, that I believe you to be honest... But an understanding of the Constitution different from mine I cannot overlook, because the Constitution, to be worth anything, must be held sacred and rigidly observed in all its provisions. The man who wields power and misinterprets it is the more dangerous, the more honest he is. Well, I admit the truth of all you say, Crockett said, but there must be some mistake about it, for I do not remember that I gave any vote last winter upon any constitutional question. No, Colonel, there's no mistake. Though I live here in the backwoods and seldom go from home, I take the papers from Washington and read very carefully all the proceedings of Congress. My papers say that last winter you voted for a bill to appropriate $20,000 to some sufferers by a fire in Georgetown. Is that true? Certainly it is, and I thought that was the last vote which anybody in the world would have found fault with. Well, Colonel, where do you find in the Constitution any authority to give away the public money in charity? Here was another sock for when I began to think about it, I could not remember a thing in the Constitution that authorized it. I found I must take another tax, so I said, Well, my friend, I may as well own up. You've got me there. But certainly nobody would complain that a great and rich country like ours should give the insignificant sum of $20,000 to relieve women and children, particularly with a full and overflowing treasury. And I am sure if you had been there, you would have done just as I did. It is not the amount, Colonel, that I complain of. It is the principle. In the first place, the government ought to have in the Treasury no more than enough for its legitimate purposes. But that has nothing to do with the question. The power of collecting and dispersing money at pleasure is the more dangerous power that can be entrusted to man, particularly under our system of collecting revenue by a tariff which reaches every man in the country, no matter how poor he may be. And the poorer he is, the more he pays in proportion to his means. What is worse, it presses upon him without his knowledge where the weight centers, for there is not a man in the United States who can ever guess how much he pays to the government. So you see that while you are contributing to Relieve One, you are drawing it from thousands who are even worse off than he. If you had the right to give anything, the amount was simply a matter of discretion to you, and you had as much right to give $20 million as $20,000 dollars. If you have the right to give to one, you have the right to give to all, and as the Constitution neither defines charity nor stipulates the amount, you are at liberty to give to any and everything which you believe or profess to believe is a charity, and to any amount you may think proper. You will very easily perceive what a wide door this would open for fraud and corruption and favoritism on the one hand, and for robbing the people on the other. No, Colonel. Congress has no right to give charity. Individual members may give as much of their own money as they please, but they have no right to touch a dollar of the public money for that purpose. There are about 240 members of Congress. If they had shown their sympathy for the sufferers by contributing each one week's pay, it would have made over $13,000. There are plenty of wealthy men in Washington who could have given $20,000 without depriving themselves of even a luxury of life. The congressmen chose to keep their own money, which, if reports be true, some of them spend not very credibly, and the people about Washington no doubt applaud you for relieving them from the necessity of giving what was not yours to give. The people have delegated to Congress by the Constitution the power to do certain things. To do these, it is authorized to collect and pay monies, and for nothing else. Everything beyond this is usurpation and a violation of the Constitution. So you see, Colonel... You have violated the Constitution, and what I consider a vital point, it is a precedent fraught with danger to the country, for when the Congress once begins to stretch its power beyond the limits of the Constitution, there is no limit to it, and no security for the people. I have no doubt you acted honestly, but that does not make it any better, except as far as you are personally concerned, and you see that I cannot vote for you. Okay, I think I'll link the full story in the notes, but... This so impacted Crockett that he never again voted for government charity, as it was simply unconstitutional and therefore dishonorable to the American people. Notice that the farmer said that there were plenty of people that could have contributed money and helped those in need, but because the government did it for them, they didn't have to lay out a dime. And that's what has happened to the United States, largely due to the New Deal and the Great Society programs. In fact, those on the left, currently termed Democrats, but really are more socialist or Marxist at this point, they don't want charitable giving to be a thing. This is why Obama wanted to limit and roll back the tax breaks for charitable giving. That's just one more step toward disincentivizing charitable giving. As charities start to flounder, of course, you know, someone has to make up the difference, which is where the government would step right in. The Marxist philosophy is that the government is your friend and your family. It's your church. It's your your benefactor. The government is your God. You give according to your ability, and you take according to your need. And then eventually you give according to your mandated quota, and you take according to the minimum determined required to sustain life until you reach the point where your life is no longer deemed worth sustaining. Now, all that said, as our article stated, the United States gives around a half a trillion dollars every year. Imagine what we could do if we eliminated most or all of the social programs through the government and allowed people to keep more of their own money to determine how we want to use it. The American people could simply dwarf the money used for welfare and social programs that the government mismanages and wastes, and the private sector would work with the goal of getting people back on their own two feet rather than living off of the teat of the welfare system for their entire lives. But this author then states something that should set off alarm bells for all of us. Quote, Altruistic giving is an evolutionary miracle which relies on a capacity for compassion. People put themselves into the shoes of those less fortunate and experience sadness on their behalf. Its mere existence is puzzling because it goes against the Darwinian principles of egoistic self-preservation. And she's absolutely correct here. Yet she holds firm to her belief in a fantasy cloaked as science. Darwinian evolution has no mechanism to explain compassion. We shouldn't care about each other. We shouldn't care about animals. We shouldn't care about the planet. Evolutionary theory, by definition, requires the absence of compassion. If I were to act as an evolutionary animal, then I would either kill or enslave all males, as males are a threat to the continuance and the evolution of my genetic code, I would further breed females for me to breed with. Any female old enough to be impregnated must be impregnated by me, because that's how I win. I need to make as many of me as possible so me can evolve and me can overwhelm, and overall me can rule." I also need to eliminate, as in kill to extinction, any animal that poses a threat. Additionally, I should strip the planet bare of resources to further grow my kingdom. So Ms. Krakow is absolutely correct. Compassion does not fit the Darwinian evolutionary model. But this isn't the paradox she speaks of. Why not? Because this isn't a paradox, this is quite literally just a contradiction. Darwinian evolution and compassion simply cannot exist at the same time in the same relationship. No, the paradox is something that's been termed compassion fade. Put simply, the larger the scale of the need, the less charity is given. And she cites an example of a crowdsourced campaign raking in $1.2 million to send a child from New York to visit the Harvard campus. While the Ebola virus outbreak in Western Africa in 2014 to 2016, well, that only saw $100,000 of charitable donations. And and admittedly, that, that's awful. Well, Ms. Amateur Yogi has two main reasons as to why Compassion Fate exists, and we'll take a look at those momentarily, but I feel as if I need to clarify a few things first. First of all, the crowdsourcing campaign she referred to was done through Indiegogo. I found this. Uh, this was started by Brandon Stanton, the founder of a photography blog entitled Humans of New York. When he visited a Brooklyn middle school, he heard stories from these inner city, mostly black children, how their teachers, and especially their principal, were working hard to make sure they all knew that they mattered, as individuals and as people. Because of the care shown by the teachers, these children were by and large doing very well academically, but most had no idea about anything outside of their city. So he set up this crowdfunded account to pay for students from the middle school not just one child, but many students to go visit the campus of Harvard so they could feel what it was like to be a top scholar standing on the campus of a top college in order to motivate them to strive for greatness. Now, I don't know how many students have been able to visit Harvard due to the $1.2 million that was raised, or if they're still doing it, or what happened in the end. I don't really know. But the author of the article said that this was for one single child, a child. Which is either ignorance due to just terrible research on her part, or is simply a lie to try to make her point. As for the Ebola outbreak donations, the author neglected to tell us that she was counting only the charitable contributions made to the American Red Cross. But when you look into it further, you know, do a little googling or duck-duck going you quickly find that the Gates Foundation—and yes, they're basically an evil organization— but they alone pledged $50 million to fight Ebola. Digging a little more, I found a site, bmj.com, that had some interesting data— the outbreak happened in march of 2014 if i found the correct information which i did the call for help went out a few months later the donations started rolling in slowly by august but by december of 2014 over 1 billion dollars had been given already worldwide and a total of nearly 3 billion dollars had been pledged to be given now out of that the united states had pledged 900 million dollars from all sources and had already given 855 million of that pledge the next largest country in terms of donations was the UK, with a pledge of $307 million, with $302 million already had been given. And the list of donors continues, and the amounts continue to get smaller the farther down the list you go. The article then breaks down the sources of the giving, and as expected, because this is the world we live in today, public funding sources like governments are the largest contributors as they theoretically have the deepest pockets or the fastest printing presses. Either way. But I believe of the 1 billion that had already been collected globally, 10% or 100 million was given by private individuals and organizations. Another 83 million was given by foundations and 66 million was given by private companies. You can see that the author stated <coughs> facts of 1.2 million for a single child and only $100,000 for a deadly outbreak. Well, that's disingenuous at best. Now, in her defense, she was simply parroting, although Leaving out some key details, a paper entitled Helping One or Helping Many, A Theoretical Integration and Meta-Analytic Review of the Compassion Fade Literature, which was found on ScienceDirect.com, published in 2018. Bottom line, if you're very selective with the data you use, you can analyze said data and arrive at the conclusion you wanted to arrive at in the first place. If you, as this author did, further select parts of the already selectively selected data, Oh, you can definitely make whatever point you so choose, which is how we get here today. So now that we have a grasp on this very potentially fake paradox of compassion, let's take a look at why we, as humanity, do what we apparently don't actually do, according to her article. Her first reason for so-called compassion fate is termed the cognitive biases approach. Now, according to simplypsychology.org, a cognitive bias is, quote, a systematic error in thinking, affecting how we process information, perceive others, and make decisions. It can lead to irrational thoughts or judgments and is often based on our perceptions, memories, or individual and societal beliefs. So we're thinking irrationally, then. Apparently, that's what she's claiming. She says that one reason we have compassion fate is that, quote, People's emotional reactions and sympathetic responses are affected by different cognitive biases and thinking limitations. One such limitation is related to our numeracy skills. She goes on to explain that many people have trouble making sense of large numbers. For instance, we can generally understand and picture groups of 10 or 50 or 100, but the bigger the number, the trickier it gets. So when we see a lot of people suffering, I guess our brains just kind of short-circuit or something. (laughs) So in the case of the Ebola outbreak from 2014 to 2016, there were over 28,500 suspected cases, over 15,000 confirmed cases, and over 11,000 deaths. I guess we just can't understand those big numbers, except that from the massive influx of charitable donations, it kind of seems like maybe we actually can. <laughs> oh, but shh, 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 that's, that's not the point of the article. Another bias, she claims, is the identifiable victim effect. This basically claims that if you can picture or identify an individual who's suffering, you're more apt to empathize and show compassion as opposed to showing compassion for a, a general widespread tragedy. Now, I'd agree that it's much easier to empathize with a single victim. This is why all the animal commercials show the individual suffering dogs. This is why every Christian concert used to and I don't know, maybe or probably still does. They give the pitch to adopt a child with individual children pictured from around the world with all their specifics. This is why in the latest Israeli Hamas war, the Israelis were putting up posters of each individual that was kidnapped by those terrorist animals. So it's correct that we can empathize with a single individual much more easily than we can with a group. But does that affect our compassion and charity? Hmm, We'll get there. The other reason we have this alleged compassion fade, she terms the motivational approach. Basically, this is nothing more than a cost-benefit analysis. If we donate a certain amount to help a person, we perceive that as being more impactful and more beneficial than if we donate that same amount to disaster relief for a large-scale tragedy. And I would once again say yes, that perception is probably correct because that's how math works. If I have $100 to give to charity and I give it to one child in need, well, that's $100 for that child. If I give it to a fund to help 100 people displaced because of an apartment fire, well, that's $1 per person. If I give it to an area hit by a hurricane and 10,000 people on the coast lost everything, well, that's one-tenth of one cent per person. So the perception is actually reality. My money goes farther the fewer people that it's going to. But I think she hit on a key point that, Just as with the evolution thing, she she totally missed the point that she made. She said, quote, In making a small donation to a larger aid campaign, people may feel like their personal contribution doesn't make much of a difference. After all, what's $5 in the context of a million-dollar aid appeal? Indeed, a donation in this context may be perceived as less impactful or significant, and feelings of emotional reward are likely to be lower. Did you catch that? Quote, Feelings of emotional reward. I think that, more than anything, is a key to being charitable for many. It's not that we want to help those in need. I mean, we do, but it's that we want to feel good about how we help those in need, or that that we want to tell others how we help those in need, so we can be praised by others for helping those in need. It's about us. Compassion, empathy, charity for at least a segment of the population is all about self, Now, there have been innumerable studies done in the United States and around the world regarding charitable giving. The findings aren't anything earth-shattering. Most of us know who donates the most money, who volunteers the most time, and what country outgives them all. But no reason to assume. Let's look at some of the data. So, a study done in 2021 entitled, Are Conservatives More Charitable Than Liberals in the U.S.? A meta-analysis of political ideology and charitable giving. They stated in their abstract, quote, Political ideology not only influences political activities, but also a political field such as charitable giving. Our meta-analysis results suggest that political conservatives are significantly more charitable than liberals at an overall level. But the relationship between political ideology and charitable giving varies under different scenarios. Furthermore, meta-regression results indicate that the measure of charitable giving, the type of charitable giving, and controlling for religiosity can account for the variation in effect sizes. Now, I'm not willing to pay for their study to find their numbers, but let me say this. In a study, you don't use the term significantly more unless there is a large difference. Notice, though, they try to temper this finding by reanalyzing the data while controlling for the type of giving and the religious affiliation of the giver you know when you pull the data out of the analysis well things aren't as significant <laughs> shocker which is fine but again we're back to the idea that if you selectively select the data you can conclude whatever conclusion you want to conclude Another study was done, reported on in the Fiscal Times via finance.yahoo.com, undertaken by the Chronicles of Philanthropy after the Obama-Romney election debacle of 2012. Now, to be clear, this study analyzed charitable giving, not political giving, but they used the presidential voting results as the determination of conservative or liberal. So they found that the states that gave the highest percentage of their adjusted gross income to charity were states that voted for Romney. The lowest giving voted Obama. In fact, the top 17 states with regard to rate of giving all voted for Romney, but all but two of the lowest 15 states in giving went for Obama. Now, the Fiscal Times article went on to say that although it's generally accepted that conservatives are more generous than liberals, a paper written by a pair of MIT political scientists say that isn't really the case. They say that with regard to individual charity, the, quote, relationship between conservatism and giving vanishes after adjusting for income and religiosity. Oh, so if you remove the wealthy from the study, and you remove the religious from the study, why, the remaining conservative or liberal non-religious middle and lower class individuals are basically identically charitable. See, liberals are just as charitable as conservatives. When you selectively select the data, a site named philanthropyroundtable.org presented a study from what appears to be 2016 regarding generosity in the United States. They've got a lot of charts and graphs in there, so, you know, I like it, but a few things of note for, for this segment here, individuals account for 80% of charitable giving and 9% of that is bequests or donations made through a will, as opposed to 15% that's given by foundations and 5% given by corporations. 63 million individuals, or 25% of the adult population, volunteered their time, an average of 139 hours per year, for a total of 8.7 billion volunteer hours in a single year. Females give more than males. Whites give more than blacks, Asians, or Latinos. Married give more than single. Giving is higher, the higher the level of education. And the middle-aged gives more than those younger or older. 67% of households give an average of 4% of their income. The other 33% give nothing. And those that attend religious services 27 to 52 times a year outgive those who don't attend religious services at all in both percent of people who give and the amount given to both secular and religious causes with a total annual charitable giving per person of $2,935 for the religiously affiliated versus $704 for the non-religious. That's a four-to-one difference. So did you notice all of these studies cite religiosity as a factor in charitable giving? A major factor, in fact. Is anyone shocked by this? On a website for the Action Institute, which has the address of rlo.action.org for some reason, I found an article from 2019 entitled, Religion Drives Charitable Giving in America. So let me give you a few additional quick stats from this study. Those with any religious affiliation at all donated an annual average of $1,590 versus $695 for those with no affiliation. Two-thirds of religious service attendees donate to secular causes compared to less than half of non-attenders, or, you know, secular people. And for those that donate to these secular causes, the religious give 20% more than the pagans. I only bring this up to demonstrate that those with a religious affiliation generally just simply care. And if you're doing something good for society, for the needy, or for the world, we're in there fighting with you. Religion contributes $1.2 trillion worth of value to the U.S. economy, which is more than the combined revenue for the top 10 largest American tech giants, and more than the total economy of all but 14 nations in the world. In other words, if religion was its own country— they'd be the 15th largest economically. Members of the churches and synagogues in the U.S. send four and a half times as much money as the Gates Foundation overseas to those in need. And on a more macro level, Americans donate more than two and a half times that of Britons, more than eight times as much as Germans, and 12 times that of Japanese. So when it comes to compassion and charity, well, let's head back to the original article about compassion fade. So is it true that visualizing large numbers is more difficult than small numbers of people or individuals? Sure it is. I mean, this is why people aren't freaking out about our national debt. This is why evolutionism is constantly inflating the supposed age of the universe. There's a point where we can no longer make logical sense of a number. Is it true that we can identify more easily with someone we can see or talk to or learn about, you know, get to know in some way? Of course that's true. Is it true that there is a different kind of motivation knowing that your donation will bring about a larger benefit? Well, there is, yes, and and there's actually nothing wrong with that. If you choose to donate your money to more individualistic causes, I mean, that's your prerogative. The problem with doing this comes about when you're donating for your own glory, not to truly help others. If you're a Christian, if you're not donating with the intention of glorifying God, there are bigger self-centered issues you need to focus on. Remember, if it wasn't for God's blessing on you, you wouldn't be able to help others. Jesus was fairly clear about this found in Matthew 6, quote, "...beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men." Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I mean, we seemingly have the choice when it comes to giving, right? We can strive for earthly glory given to us by man, or we can opt to forego those earthly accolades with the knowledge that God sees and knows exactly what we're doing and the motivation of our hearts in doing it. And he has no problem and, in fact, delights in rewarding his children in ways infinitely better than any pat on the back we may get for man. And can we just agree that that's hard for most of us? I mean, going back to those Christian concerts, when you adopt a child from a foreign country, what do you get when you sign up to make those donations? You get a picture of the child and a card with the details. And then over time, you get the occasional letter or artwork. And what are you told to do with this? Well, you're told to put it on the refrigerator. That way you and everyone else can see what you're doing. If you've ever donated to GoFundMe or GiveSendGo, how hard is it to make your donation as anonymous? Especially if you're donating a larger amount. And generally, unless it's a local thing, nobody else that's donating is going to care one bit about who you are that you donated. But we still kind of want our name on that on that list there. Right. We want our moment in the sun as well. That aside is the premise of the article. True. Is compassion fade a real thing? Now, my gut tells me that, uh, no, it isn't. I'd say that there are a number of factors that go into charitable donations for events. You know, there, there are many, many charities out there, many of them claiming to help the same things, many of them in the exact same ways. The donations get diluted. And just like this article claimed, only $100,000 donated to the Ebola outbreak in Africa but that's only counting one of the many charities. The real picture is much, much different. There are a lot of needs. It seems like everywhere we turn, another natural disaster, another tragedy, another best mom in the whole world with three little kids that absolutely adore her who died from cancer, so please help. The reality is that there is only so much money to go around, and as we saw by the data, the pool of donors is whittled down by political leaning and by religiosity, which means you have less than 100% of the possible donors right off the bat. The number of things asking for and receiving donations is inflated. <sighs> Here we go. Now, I'm not an artsy kind of guy, so this is going to sound biased, but I assure you it's not. If a museum, art gallery, or performing arts, whatever thing, or a similar organization can't make it on ticket sales and merchandising and gift shops, then maybe they don't need to exist let me be clear, I think this concept should apply to everything that's not a need, no matter what it is. Now, that said, I'd argue that maybe size should be a factor. Like, say, colleges with tens of billions of dollars in the bank should maybe tell their donors to donate to a relief organization, you know, for the next decade. National museums and galleries should be left to fund themselves, not take our tax dollars, while also collecting donations from the populace. Local organizations, the small privately owned museum of whatever, the local amateur performing art studio, the local band or orchestra, even school events or clubs, sure, I I have no problem with them asking for donations, as long as that money is strictly accounted for. Bottom line, many of the things asking for money right now, as much as they may be loved by some, they're not a need, they're a nice-to-have, and they'll be just as nice if they live within their means. Next, it's the economy, stupid. Right? The the worse the economy gets, the tighter budgets get. The smaller the donations get. That's simple math. And if a tragedy happens during an economic slowdown, well, the donations are going to come, but just not as fast and most likely not as large. And then the government. (laughs) Like it or not, we have been trained that for large national tragedies, FEMA is supposed to come to the rescue. Although some towns are meeting the trucks at the edge of town and turning them around, not wanting to be beholden to the federal government, which is probably the right thing to do in nearly every case, Most of us either consciously or subconsciously expect that the state and the federal governments are going to come in and mop up, you know, do the heavy lifting when a hurricane hits or a blizzard freezes an area solid or whatever. You know, we pay our taxes. That's supposed to go for that. Beyond that, we'll donate some. We'll donate water and clothes and whatnot. But the the government has been very clear. We don't need to worry about it. They're from the government. They're here to help. And I'm sure there are dozens of other factors that play into who or what is donated to. I'd even include luck of the draw, right? I mean, there are, what, probably thousands, tens of thousands of crowdfunding charity campaigns available to donate to right now online? How many out of those thousands or more are picked up by a local or a national broadcast of some sort, gain notoriety, trend on whatever social media platform, and get widespread attention? Not many. But those that do will be overrun with donations, while the others, in essentially the exact same circumstance, may possibly get a handful if they're lucky. Now, I find the idea of compassion fade and an easy conclusion to draw, as conceptually it seems correct, but I have a feeling, and yes, I, I mean, this is an admission that this is my opinion. I have a feeling that if the data was honestly and completely analyzed, taking into account factors like those mentioned above and many more, compassion fade would be debunked quick, fast, and in a hurry. The Bible is very clear that we are to help our fellow man. I mean, it starts at home, right? Taking care of your family. 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If we can do more than that, we are to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ, which starts with the widows and the orphans, and then it extends to all our fellow believers. We're supposed to show compassion to each other, bear each other's burdens, forgive one another. And then we're told and shown over and over that we are to show compassion to our fellow man. We see Jesus feeling compassion and showing charity to the multitudes that were following him, even though he clearly knew that many of them, most of them maybe, were following him simply to avail themselves of miraculous healings or free food. So at the beginning of this segment, I asked, why are we charitable? Well, as humans, we're pre-programmed to be charitable, to be compassionate with others. God has written that on our hearts. Jesus and the apostles and others have been examples for us, and the Bible gives us the instruction. Of course, sin has marred that compassion, that desire to be charitable, and some have even seared their conscience to the point that feelings or acts of charity or compassion are unfortunately few and far between. Yet despite sin, despite selfishness, the economy, governments, political ideologies, and everything else, we continue to be a charitable people. So why did this author write this article? Well, she gives an answer as to what we can do about this compassion fate. She said the best way to avoid this is to avoid the complex statistics of large tragedies. In order to more evenly distribute aid, you know, to be more fair and equitable, quote, It's usually helpful to showcase individual victims of large-scale misfortune. By telling personal stories, mass suffering becomes more relatable and thereby easier to imagine. And while a single person's experience is unlikely to be representative of an entire victim group, it might provide the necessary impetus for a compassionate response. I mean, how's that for a solution? She said nothing. She offered Nothing! She gave a simplistic idea to try to trick people into donating, fully admitting, that might not work. And the reason she has no answer is because she has no idea if there's a problem. Or she does, and she's being disingenuous, and she has no idea where compassion and charity come from, or or how they work. Therefore, she's not able to offer a solution. She has no reason to be compassionate toward others because it goes against what she believes to be true. She has no moral authority to stand on. She has no absolute truth to make claims against. She simply believes we should be charitable and compassionate toward those in need because she believes that she believes it. As with all things, the solution, of course, to a human problem is the gospel. The reality of who we are as image bearers of God, what our role is on this planet, the true truth of the Bible, those are the only things that can lead us to be truly charitable, to have true love and compassion for others. I wonder if she felt unfulfilled with her proffered solution. I wonder if she got to the end of her short article and realized that she had absolutely nothing to offer her reader or herself. I wonder if she sees the contradiction in her alleged paradox. She's a psychologist and a decision researcher, someone that claims expertise in decision-making, but she has no ground to stand on when making decisions. So, my fellow Christian, take care of your family. That's your job. There are no caveats on that. We are to take care of our families. Now, if you can do more than that, take care of your brothers and sisters in Christ by directly helping and by bringing your offerings to the church— And then find other ways to donate or volunteer if you can do more besides those first two. Above all, remember, you're not doing it for your glory. You're not doing it for someone else. Although, I mean, you're you're doing that too. You're doing this all for the glory of God. That is why we're compassionate. That's why we're charitable. And that's why the unregenerate world will never understand. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. So first, I hope that you all had a fun, safe, and above all, thankful Thanksgiving. I took the week off, since I had to uh, use it or lose it, it was some vacation days, and I spent the week filling, sanding, priming, painting, painting, taping, painting, painting, removing the tape, then touching up painting, because, you know, stupid tape, because it was the tape's fault, not mine, and I'm still not quite done. I decided to freshen up the entryway, the coat closet, the stairwell, and... Let me tell you, I just hate the entire process. I hate having to block up a ladder on the stairway to get to the top of the wall. But I do like the results. I still have stair treads to paint, the railing to paint, few other small things. And I need to continue the painting into the upstairs hallway. And when that's done, I guess I'll head into the living room and see if I can do anything with that. Hey, welcome to goal update... uh, Was this, 39, I guess, right? So, as we're moving into December... It's wind-down time, right? At least it always feels like wind-down from normal stuff, as the shopping, the wrapping, the family, the trips, etc. All that ramps up. I mean, it's a good trade-off, but is anyone else just kind of tired? I mean, it's funny, every year it seems like this is the time at work where you just start to feel kind of drained. And then at least for me, I go away for a work week about... Nine or ten total days, come back in January, and it's like it's a brand new thing. I mean, it's a new year, but it was only a week, yet it feels like much more than just taking a week off somewhere in the middle of the year. I don't know. Rambling. Maybe it's just me. Maybe not. I think I'll do one more goal update this year, sometime in December. I'm hoping to have some ideas of goals for 2024 by that final update for the year, although I may not have the exact specifics yet. Not sure exactly how I'll run the podcast through the end of the year either, but I'd expect to have one or two weeks without a new episode drop, and if I decide to continue doing goal updates, it probably won't start until late January or early February, then I'm not really sure if I'll do it weekly or what I'll do, I don't know, I'll just kind of have to see. A lot of things going on right now at home, at work, for the holidays, I, but I'll jumble it all out in this brain of mine and it'll all work out, it'll be alright. That said, with regard to weight, I have no idea. Too much, I can tell you that. With regard to working out, well, I mean, I did a lot of sweating and a lot of walking, a lot of stair and ladder climbing last week, but no formal workouts. Not sure where I'll end up come, a, you know, the end of the year or more accurately after the holidays. Uh, likely down a little from where I started, which is historically my favorite form of diet, you know, the yo-yo diet. Uh, hopefully down some from where I started this year, we'll just kind of have to see. It's okay, though, as I think I'll be entering 2024 with a clearer idea of what I can and can't do, or should and shouldn't do, or I don't know, maybe I'll just fail in a spectacular manner. Who knows? You know what they say, you always burn the brightest right before plunging into the sun. Something like that. Doesn't matter. Books read. Well, that's a big LOL, right? Uh, no, just just no. No time, and or no energy, late nights, tired physically, tired mentally, just just not gonna pick up a book and read. I'm really not sure I'll get to another book this year or not. I know the next one on the list, and um, I know that once I start it, I'm gonna want to plow through it. And with everything going on right now, that may not be a good idea. So we'll just kind of have to see. As for Bible reading, well, with a week of doctor and dentist appointments, you know, just checkups and whatnot for me for the kid working through lunch so I could leave early to get places, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, random excuses, excuses, all that stuff. Well, I had two weeks of two focused readings per week. Um, so, you know, four times I got in the Bible, uh, at least specifically over two weeks. So that's uh, that's not good either. And uh, And that's part of what I want to do is reformulate how I want to schedule everything that I'm trying to get done. I think using my lunch period, my lunch 30 minutes or whatever at work, for accomplishing something is valid. I think I should do that, but I don't think relying on it for my Bible reading is a good idea. It's, uh, it's kind of proven to be not as reliable as I was kind of hoping. That needs to be given a higher level of importance. So it's part of setting goals for next year. I'll kind of work all that in and figure out what I want to do. So for this update... Uh, specifically I'm up through Exodus 20, no additional in-depth reading. That's also going to be part of setting goals for 2024, figure out how to work that in. And regardless of how many days I did my reading, the reading is slowing down because I'm into the 10 commandments and now into the various laws and rules and punishments. And I don't know, either you gloss over them or you slow down and try to gain some understanding. I'm trying to take the latter approach. So time and mental capacity, it's slower, at least for me. I mean, I can tell you that I have a different appreciation for pastors and the like as studying, writing, reviewing, editing, all that for 40 hours a week, more or less, a lot of them more. Um, I think it would turn my brain to mush. I'm sure you get used to it and then you develop a pattern and a process and everything, but still. So, Not a lot of things to mention this time, but I have a few, so let's see what I found. Now, as we know, Moses fled from Egypt, settled in Midian, where he married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, and had a couple sons. Then God appeared in a burning bush. Moses, after a lot of excuse making, (laughs) I can identify, went back to Egypt, and then got Aaron, and then they went to Pharaoh, and then plague, 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 Passover, and the Exodus began. Then we know that the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness rather than heading directly to the promised land, and this was prior to their punishment of wandering until that generation died off. But of course, they weren't wandering. God was leading them exactly where he wanted them to go. So we get to Exodus 18, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, heard of the plagues, heard of the Exodus, so he went to Moses in the wilderness with Moses' wife and sons, Now, at the beginning of this year, I heard a message set in the book of Exodus, and for whatever reason, it hit me. Jethro just kind of came over to talk to Moses. Well, in my elementary-aged Sunday school mind, I just kind of automatically have always connected wilderness with a massively huge area of land, like the Sahara Desert. You know, that's 3,000 miles east to west, about 1,000 miles north to south. And Moses and the Israelites, well, they must just be wandering around in the middle of a wilderness like that. Just no civilization, just nothing. And somehow I've been able to disconnect that idea from the text of the Bible where they were passing by or through various kingdoms of other civilizations or whatever. So it hit me at the beginning of this this year that this wilderness just isn't that big. When Jethro came to speak with Moses, it was about 70 miles as the crow flies, about 150 miles by land going up and around the northeast tip of the Red Sea. So by camel or donkey or whatever, you know, it wouldn't have been just a couple hours to get there, but camels can travel from 25 to 100 miles per day. So I don't know, maybe it was a couple day trip, maybe three days to go see Moses. The wilderness was really relatively tiny. As compared to the Sahara, the wilderness that the Israelites wandered in, just the area, they didn't even go through all of this, but just the general area was well under 1% of the area of the Sahara Desert. I mean, I wouldn't want to walk my way through there, but I don't really want to walk upstairs to use the bathroom either, so I'm probably not a good gauge with regard to walking. So, I kind of think of it like the old Steve Martin movie, The Jerk as Navin, played by Steve Martin, leaves home to set out on his own. He's going to hitchhike his way to go figure himself out, right? Well, his family, a few hours later, they're sitting around the dinner table and they're wondering how he's doing, if he's okay. So the sister leans out the front window and shouts, Hey, Navin, how you doing? And he shouts back, Don't worry about me. I think I see a car coming. No, wait, it's a truck. It's a truck. Oh, this is kind of how I see Moses and Jethro in the wilderness. Moses wandering for 40 years just kind of right out the front window or just down the road a few feet from everyone and everything he knew for 40 years. And that kind of brings up this idea that the fact that he led the Israelites for that long, in that close of a proximity, without just throwing up his hands and walking away going back to Jethro, that's kind of amazing to me. Moving on, Exodus 20 Verses 4 through 6. In the middle of the Ten Commandments, it says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The phrase in the middle visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. That has caused some real confusion. There are some that believe this means that there's such a thing as a generational curse. There's a lot of charlatans that are more than happy to diagnose your generational curse and tell you how to get rid of that yourself and just sow a seed and we can get this process moving. Let me just say emphatically, there is no such thing as a generational curse. God will not punish you for sins your father committed. If you're saved, if your father is saved, Jesus was punished and killed for the sins of his children. If your father was a rank pagan and you're saved, Jesus died for your sins. Those are taken care of. You receive mercy based on justice being meted out upon Christ. Your unsaved father, for example, will receive justice for his own sins. There's no transference here. So what exactly does this phrase mean? Well, per a Phil Johnson message, and Phil, he's part of John MacArthur's church and leadership, the message entitled, The Sins of the Father, he explains that this is essentially a warning, not a threat. This is a warning to parents to turn from their sin and to Christ, as their lives can adversely affect how they interact with their children, what they teach their children, subsequent life choices made by the children. Likewise, this is a warning to children to turn to Christ— regardless of what their parents did or didn't do. Don't follow in the footsteps of sinful parents. And then finally, as Phil pointed out, this is applicable only to those that hate God. If you're saved, can you be a hater of God? Or maybe the better way to ask it, if you hate God, can you be saved? The answer is no. No, you can't. So this warning is only applicable to those that are unsaved. Speaking of generations of a sinful family, walking in the same sinful ways as the previous generations, hating God. It's generational sin, generational life choices, not generational cursing. Okay, Finally, at the end of Exodus 20, God commands them to make an altar of earth to sacrifice to him. Then he cautions them that if they were to make an altar of stone, to use no tool on the stones to shape them, or they would profane it. Use only uncut natural stones. So first, these are two different types of altars. The Hebrew words used for earth and stone are two completely different words. So God told them to make an altar out of earth, out of the ground. But then he cautions them about if they were to make a stone altar. So why would using a tool on the stones to shape them and fit them properly profane it? I see two possibilities here. First, This was stated right after the Ten Commandments and then right after a restatement by God to not make any idols, specifically of gold or silver. It's possible that God is linking these two thoughts together, telling them not to make an ornate, fashioned altar so as to eliminate the potential of idol worship of an altar. Second, I've heard R.C. Sproul make this comment with regard to Uzzah being struck dead when he reached out to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling and hitting the ground. Sproul says that it would have been better for the Ark to hit the dirt, as the dirt was doing exactly as it was designed to do, while Uzzah was a sinful man and was filthier than the dirt from a spiritual sense. So it's possible that the uncut stones are exactly as God designed them sinlessly doing exactly what God designed them to do, whereas tools fashioned by sinful man, fashioning stones in the image that sinful man desires them, profanes the stones by association with man rather than directly to God. Okay, those are the larger main thoughts out of the pitifully small amount of reading that I did over the last few weeks, and as I'm tired and it's getting late, and this needs to be recorded and the next episode assembled and dropped. I better end it here. Okay, bye.